Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Happy Christmas, happy holidays, and happy New Year. Right around the corner from 24 here. Pretty hard to believe. Hope you all have some great flying plans coming up this season. And my guest today is from the other side of the world, so he's uh, currently in their season down there, but also we're thinking about the Alps next year as he comes over to the Alps most summers and travels around in his van and competes in, in comps and a pretty wide-ranging uh, passion for the sport is Louis Tapper. You know, I met Louis initially doing some training with uh, Nick Nanans back in the 2015 X Alps, getting ready for that race. It was Nick and I's first go, and Louis was his supporter and good pilot. We had a really cool flight from Vonk up to the Kimsey, kind of reverse course line, you know, a few a few weeks before the for the race, and became good friends. And I've since seen him at World Cups around the world. And uh, just great dude. And really, he really thinks about this sport uh, in a very thorough way, I guess. He articulates it really well. He flies sailplanes. He listens to everything. He reads everything. He's very methodical in his approach. And he and a few others were approached by the New Zealand Hang Gliding Paragliding Association uh, a while back to create a a safety and accident report, really comprehensive report that went back all the way to the beginning in New Zealand to try to discover why uh, accidents happen and how they can be reduced or eliminated. So they went back and looked at hang gliding, paragliding, speed flying, and really compiled it first they had to figure out how to even address the data and where the data was was showing and what it wasn't and a lot of these reports were pretty thin on information so a really comprehensive look it took them a lot of time to put this together and it's it's an incredible document you'll find the link for it in the show notes if you want to read it uh, which i did in prep for this talk and it's it's pretty fascinating it's not anything that you wouldn't expect but the the takeaways and how we can improve as a community i feel like we're kind of angling towards what the faa did back in the 90s uh, to try to eliminate accidents in commercial aircraft and a lot of this gets back to kind of threat and error management which is one of the chapters in the book but identifying threats before they come errors and then lead down that uh lead down that path potentially to an unstable aircraft and what they discovered is you know that accidents very rarely just happen there's a string of events and if we can identify those and eliminate them we'd eliminate a lot of accidents a lot of bad accidents and so they looked at other models they looked at other countries you know Norway's done some really interesting things here but so we we, we begin by talking about his uh, his record-breaking kite surfing expedition in Brazil back in 2010 and how he got into flying and his passion for flying and, and the X-Alps and a bunch of stuff. This is a wide-ranging talk, but we end up at this re- report, this accident report, and dive into it and try to tease out where we all as a community can improve and how we can uh, and not hit the ground and uh, and participate in this sport for a long time safely. 
some great stuff here from a great friend. I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. And again, happy holidays. Mr. Tapper, we've uh, been trying to do this for years, I believe. Yeah, I think this is probably about the fourth time you've asked me to do this, but <laughs> finally we've got this together. I've been putting it off for a while. Persistence pays off. Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're a very thoughtful lad, and I appreciate that most people are just, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll go for it. But you were, no, I need the right, I need to think about this, and I need to be, we need to get this report done, which we'll talk about here in a bit, but... You know, there's a, I, I like that you want to, you want to come out with a bang, man. You want to, you want to impress. I get it. <laughs> How are you? Yeah. Yeah. Look, we've been working on the report for yeah, a, over a year and it's been a year since it was got released. So yeah, I just wanted to have something to talk about really. Yeah. And that'll, that'll be really good. Those of you listening, we're going to talk about this safety report that Louie and a bunch of other uh, fine folks down in New Zealand put together, uh, studying a lot of accidents and, What's the causes and what can we do as a community to improve? We'll, we'll, we'll get to that here in a bit because I've read it. It's fantastic. Uh, and I think there's a lot of learning there. But before we do, just so you all can get to know Louis, because I, I know him quite well. We met training in the in the 2015 X-Alps. We had a wicked day from, I just love to say this, Vonk. We, were, Vonk, uh, yeah. we went up the <laughs> lift there at Vonk and, and flew up to the ash out turn points that we were kind of reverse course line that day. I think Nick made it all the way back. Maybe you did as well, but uh, it was a fantastic day and we got to know each other quite well. And then, then we got into the throws of the race, which was very exciting for, for both of our teams. It was awesome. So uh, that was, that's a little bit of our history. And then since then you and I have gotten into world cups a lot more. And so we see each other from time to time, but you came into the sport, maybe in similar fashion than I did, but I want to know the timing and the kite surfing thing. I thought a fun place to start would be in your record in 2010. You, you did some kind of a distance record and, you know, my background is in kite surfing as well. So let's start there. What what was that all about? I've had many other people tell me about this. I've never had you tell me about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this was a, a dreamed up thing that I had to um, kite as far as I could really with just a backpack and one kite, one board. Um, I ended up choosing Brazil to do that. It was um, ended up 2,000 kilometres, sort of the curve of Brazil. goes sort of past the area where all the big flights go um, and happen in, in the northeast of Brazil. Um, I'd originally planned on 4,000k actually up the coast of Madagascar and in the Comores, but um, it was going to be $100,000 just for the boat and all the logistics, so... <laughs> I thought it's not about the distance, it's more about the manner and style of doing it. And um, yeah, just one quite one board, 2,000 kilometers. So how did you link 2,000K? You must have started more on the East Coast and then go went up and around Recife? Or? Yeah, started in Salvador and ended up in uh, San Luis. Um, ah. So, you know, half of the the um, the trip was through the very famous areas that people go to um, Brazil for. Yeah. Um, but the first half was pretty tricky because not a lot of wind, wind often in the wrong direction, reef and sharks and all that sort of thing. Um, is I, I don't know if you know, but I sailed solo from Santos, which is down beyond south of uh, Rio, 
and and all the way up that coast. And I, I don't know what season you were in. Let me let me try to see if I can remember this. But I, I sailed from there to St. Martin in, in one go. And it was right. 33 days by myself. And the 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 section from Santos to Recife was, I mean, I, I was on a very low performance steel boat. So it didn't it didn't point very well. But I in my first 24 hours, I made six miles good because I, you know, I went out 70 miles and came back 70 miles and went out on a port tack, came back on a, on a starboard tack and I made six miles because <laughs> it was just pretty much north, northeast, you know, it was blowing directly yeah, yeah, from where so I was trying to go. Yeah, it's not really easy. I've There's been a couple of people who have tried from down that area and then they've ended up having to drive further north into where the wind was. I ended up having to walk for a couple of days when there was no wind and a lot of river crossings and um, things to contend with. Did you, so, you know, the pilots, the sailing directions talk about, you know, I had, I had really fouled fuel and I, I wanted to do it in one go, but I, I basically two hours out of port, my third time out of port, I, I lost the engines and, and engine, it was, a, it was a monohull and thought, ah, screw it. It's got a solar panel. It's got a wind generator. It was a 34 foot monohull. Uh, and, and I thought, yeah, you know, as long as I have wind and sun, I can, I can keep things running. I can keep the electronics running. And yep. so, you know, all the way up the coast, I had plenty because I was beaten into wind the whole way. But as I started getting close to Recife, I can't remember what was going on. There's something going on with the boat. And I thought I need to, I need to put in and, and do some repairs. And the sailing directions basically just said, yeah, you go into Recife, you're just going to get the boat taken from you and you might die. It was, it was really not a good place to go in uh, from, from a sailing or, you know, boating yachting perspective was, was that a, was that something that you had to battle with? Was there, yeah, was there a lot the of risk like that? To Recife was one of my biggest days. I think it was about 180 or 190 K. Whoa. Um, and uh, yeah, I got caught inside the reef that day. Then had to walk over the reef. Got Usa on my foot, and then finished this day in Recife, which has got one of the highest shark attack statistics anywhere in the world from bull sharks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, pulled in there, and um, yeah, it was um, you're not allowed to actually um, supposed to be swimming or kiting in that area, but. We, Managed to duck in and duck out pretty quick uh, the next day. Were you by yourself the whole way, or is this a solo deal? Yeah, this was solo. Wow. And then no land support, or was this all self-supported? No land support, no. How? So it was just basically a 35-litre backpack. Half of that was my pump, a uh, pair of shorts, T-shirt, some repair gear, some first aid kit, maybe a couple of litres of water and enough food for maybe a day. And how much skin cancer did you come home with? <laughs> well wrapped up. So <laughs> I've got Mauritian backgrounds. So, you know, oh, nice. Like... Okay, so you just you just bronze. Um, wow! And how many days did it take? Uh, so there was oh, how many? I can't remember now. It was uh, it was a, a month in total, but about twenty two days of actual kiting. God, man, you must have been exhausted. I, I think what people don't know i mean if they've kited and it's really fun and you're going back and forth what you don't know about i mean it sounds like you were doing a lot of beating up to i call it recife but you call it something else what do you call it i'm not saying it right recife, yeah. yeah uh but then once you turn the corner you're going down and down going down wind's pretty exhausting uh it's not, it's not too bad you, uh, you, you learn to stand to on the board in the right way and it's fine so were you on a surfboard or a twin tip 
Uh, I started on what was the kind of a, like a course board that was before course boards were a thing. Okay. Um, I got got about halfway through and it was getting a bit sketchy going downwind with a 11 metre kite, 35 metres of 35 knots of wind, and um, ending ending up changing to a, just a standard twin tip. Wow, man! Does the record still hold? Uh, look, it was always an unofficial record. Um, I I wanted to make it a Guinness one, but I got halfway through the event, and it's a bit of a story, I guess. And um, I was really focused on that. And um, I'd been helping a guy out that was, I think he was from South Africa, that was looking at going up the coast of Africa, and I'd written him off. And um, I saw where he started, and then I saw this update about 2,000 kilometres from where he started, and I thought, damn, this guy's beating me to it and uh moped around for a day and um and then I was like damn it it's not just about the number it's really about um pushing myself mentally and physically and um and so I'm like right I'm just going to reframe this and um it's going to be about how fast I can go for the next thousand k um I finished the finished the uh finished the kiting and um read his blog a, a while later and it turned out he'd gone, I don't know, four 400K and then <laughs> got ditched out to sea about five kilometres, swam in and got scared and then ended up um, hitching, hitching up the coast. So. Ah, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> Nicely done. Uh, sketchiest moment of the whole thing? Oh, look, there have been a few sketchy moments. Um, I think one of them was not even a quarter of the way through. A gust front came through folded the kite and went into the surf, broke four lines at the same time, and in the process of swimming in, got those lines wrapped around both my legs. It took me and a passing fisherman about an hour 40 to unravel those because I didn't want him to cut it. So that was fairly serious. Yeah, that's fairly serious. Again, it's a reframing. It's like you, you could be beating yourself up going... Oh, I'm, a, I'm a dick for, you know, not even getting a quarter of the way and this has happened. But <laughs> in the end, it was like, well, how can I make sure this, uh, what can I learn from this and how can I make sure it doesn't happen again? And so that became the hyper focus for the rest of the trip. Wow, man. Cool. It was that the 2010. Have you done anything as kind of bold and adventurous, I, I guess, is that since? Yeah, it's called paragliding. Ah, perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. Every day. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into that. Uh, cool story and amazing expedition. That's that's what, that's pretty wild. Flying history. Give us the resume version. When did it start? What was the catalyst? How did you get to where you are now? Oh, look, it started my sister's town in France, actually, um, near Grenoble. Oh. Um, she lives in a place nice called Lens-en-Vacour, and I was traveling around for the year going um, kite surfing and snow kiting, but there was no snow, no wind, so decided I'd give it a crack and uh, did a few flights, first one off the Brevon and, nice. um, in France. They're and in I Chamonix. think it was about, yeah, fifth flight in. Um, I just had this overwhelming kind of urge to want to stay up, and so I was looking at other people doing that, thermaling, and um, yeah, first up, and then uh, ended up thermaling with a um, with a hawk on flight five for about twenty minutes, and uh, 
thought, yeah, this is definitely my next sport. So what year was that? Uh, that was a couple of years after. I think that was around 2012, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So the, the hawk and flying with the hawk was the aha moment. Yeah. It was just a feeling of flow. I've done a lot of, um, kayaking previously. And if you've ever been kayaking, you know, that feeling of, you know, edging your boat and kind of having your hands in the right spot and, um, yeah, that feeling of flow was just really similar to what, what I'd experienced in kayaking, and it was just something new. I think at that point I was had enough of adventure kayaking and was looking for something new. I've asked this many times, and I know you, you listen to this show pretty regularly, but the, yep. there's this crazy crossover between yep. paddlers and pilots. They They go together incredibly well, it seems, and pilots who come from paddling as you and I have both done seem to get it really quickly have you yeah. got any unique thoughts on that that you oh look probably no more than what you've already discussed but look I think that physical act of doing it um you know that visual um spatial awareness is kind of the same it's a flow sport um your ability to kind of look at water and visualize flow i think is the key thing and if you can take that and just turn it into trying to visualize the air i think really really helps a lot and i thought i think the other one thing that's sort of a little bit underestimated is the risk management as well in terms of managing yourself and the cortisol levels and that's something i got quite good at um uh, in kayaking was just knowing when to push and when to hold back and then some days you might not feel it and listen to that hinky feeling to just walk away from it. I know you're you're pretty pretty heavy heavier than I am in terms of the engineering and thoughtful side of this and you know, you you're we're gonna get into some of your sailplane stuff and study and learning from that, but you said something there, it's interesting, you know, managing your cortisol levels. Is that something you actively have thought about and tried to do and or is this something you know because kayaking really does when you were saying that i was remembering my kayaking days i mean you have to force yourself to chill out or you're getting some deep i mean you just you lose your air yeah. you know if you if you're yeah. not calm if you're not like a spear fisherman you're in trouble because when you know when you're getting window shaded in a big research kind of deal it's it's you got to hold your air yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, there's an optimal level where anyone doing anything is going to perform at. If you're too over-aroused and, and stressed out, then you're not going to perform well. And if you're, you know, bored, then you're not going to be as attentive and probably more likely for mistakes as well. So there's there's an optimal level there. And, I've, you know, I've done a lot of sport over a num quite a number of years. And I think it's keeping yourself in that zone and getting that those flow moments is what we're really all after isn't it mm. you know you you asked me to put together a bunch of questions before we did this and you and i chatted real briefly before we started this uh, you know hey did you like them are they going to work and we brought up you know i brought up in the questions nick main and that's how we met you were supporting nick and his first which was my first in 2015 and the question was you know what did you learn from nick and we had a little giggle i'll let you answer that now but i i wonder is that one of nick's secrets because he he you know, and I think you and I kind of laughed about this. In, in many ways, I always thought Nick was one of the least prepared in terms of just the training and that kind of thing. But he was always, he was very fit. 
you know, he wasn't unfit. He just didn't train like the rest of us in terms of, yep. you know, the, yep. the hard strength training. And, the, you know, he was, he was just a, what do you guys call it? Tramping. He was a tramper. Uh, and yep. he spent a lot, of, he spends a lot of time outdoors. And, but I think one of his magic tricks was just that calmness. Although I wasn't with him in the, in the exit was, yep. is that, is that really who he is? Or is that uh, what you look, also I, saw? I think. Yeah, look, I think one of his one of his strengths is that he's um, very resilient. He knows how to walk and manage himself. He's been walking in the hills for years. Um, you know, he's not about to blow himself to bits, and you know, he, he can just keep going. I think it's um, yeah, and you know, he's having to draw on that resilience at the moment with his mm. um, accident. And I think of anyone, he's probably doing the best that I've seen, but yeah, um, in that same sort of situation. So. Yeah. But do you think that uh, not even yeah the resilience for sure in terms of the physical side, but it also the the creativity side of what he always did. He was always the most fun to watch to me in the in the X Ops because he would take these lines that were just where the hell is Nick going? And it must have been quite fun to to support that in a sense because he just has his you know I would imagine very calm way of he just kind of goes with the flow, doesn't he? Yeah, look, he's a super individual, um, modelled himself off to 30, trying to do something different to the rest of them. Um, that didn't really work on the first day when he was right up with Kriegel and decides to take a different line. Um, but I think, you know, over time he's realised that actually flying with other people kind of is a little bit more efficient. But, you know, like what drives him is being independent and um, independent thinker. Mm. so um you know as a supporter you don't tell nick what to do you present the options and leave him to decide and you know my goal with him was really just to have everything organized so there were no excuses and um that you know like he could focus on what he needed to do which was fly and good decision making it is, it is quite interesting because he he kept on that track in a sense and even probably had way less direction as the as each of the races went by because he did it with his family. They weren't pilots. They didn't really know, I don't think too much about the race and, you know, making all those, you know, as opposed to my team, I don't make any of those decisions. I don't, I don't ever have to find yeah. a launch. I don't ever have to think about where I need to be in two hours. You know, Revis goes, go here, or, you know, Bruce back in your day, go here. And Nick's just kind of doing it all. Yeah. We, we have a lot of those very decisions. different approach. Yes. Yeah, very different approach. So, um, yeah, so, you know, it's, um, you know, what's fun for people and fun for Nick was making his own decisions and being the autonomous person that he is. Mm -hmm. I, I diverted us there a little bit into my favorite topic, your history. So you you get into flying a couple of years after the kite surfing expedition down in Brazil and, and you know, now you're you're competitive on the world cup. Take, take us a little bit more through, give us some, some of the depth there and some of the passion for flying. Yeah. Look, so I came, I didn't fly for a year after that initial first flights and came back to New Zealand and learnt with infinity paragliding. And, um, there's a really good community here, which, you know, a lot of tandem pilots and people into it for a long time. And, um, had my cousin who's been sort of eighth in the world, um, who was there as a mentor um, as well, and there was plenty of good people around. I came into it not wanting to post flights online or 
anything competitive at all. Um, so that was complete turnaround for me. I think after a year, I'd won the fun class at nationals and then got hooked into it. And uh, it was just initially a way to get better at going cross country. So um, cross country, I knew right from the get go was going to be the thing that I wanted to do. So um, it's just been chasing that. So yeah, like you know, when I'm riding up the the hill with the tandem pilots, I'm like. How do you get good at the sport, and what, what do you need to do to kind of progress? And um, you know, there was you know one simple answer was get a job where you can flexible and you can fly on the good days. Mm. So right, okay, tick, right. I'm gonna you know, went and got myself a contract job, and really for the last eleven years have been uh, doing contract uh, contract IT security work. So six months of the year, and then. Rest of the time, um, either traveling or or flying here in Queenstown. Yeah, so I, I've noticed that you you seem to when summer comes around, European summer comes around, you're there all summer. So you, so yeah, so is there no work going on then, or is it are you able to do it remotely? Oh, uh, look, my my work happens different times, and hmm. um, yeah, so it, on average, it's six months a year. I have a van in Europe which I use to travel around with, which sort of helps there, and I bought that a few years back. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to use that as much as possible. Obviously, during COVID, that wasn't happening, but um, yeah, it's. I mean, the flying for me is not just been about um, competitions. It's about a lifestyle. It's about the community, and um, yeah, I'm really into that. So um, yeah, it's um, and for me, like I think the the flying is more about progression than it is necessarily about a winning or a place or a number. Mm. Um, I think as long as I'm still progressing and learning new things and sort of more of a mastery orientation to it, I think that's really what's kept me in the sport and kept me hooked in. When you look back on that progression, are there, are there a couple things or, you know, some building blocks or some aha moments, a few things in that scope of the last 10 years that were, when you look back and go, yeah, that was really important. Or yeah. Look, so for the first 150, well, 100, 150 hours, I had some simple things on a post-it note, and I wanted to go cross-country, so, um, you know, I was asking people, you know, what do you need to do, but really what it came back down to is um, launch and landings. So as soon as I got out of school, I think there was about 200 flights in that first season, and we'd just go launch and land, launch and land, fly. Um, the other thing that my cousin said to me, he said, look, you know, in that first 100 hours, don't worry about going anywhere too much, but do learn how to thermal and thermal when when things are light and a little bit tricky. Mm. So, yeah, made that, made that a priority. Mm. Um, wing handling was the other one that was um, important as well, and I thought, okay, well, I need to go do an SIV. And um, so I did a, a couple of those and... Um, and then, you know, you get into the point where, you're okay, you're um, thinking about um, where you're going to go next. You've got that first thermal. How do you connect the second one and how do you make decisions about where you need to go? Um, so right from the get-go, where there was a big focus, um, I think that's um, just from a safety perspective and also just getting you to, to the right spot at the right time was really important, and that's carried through in everything that I've done. So, yeah, in terms of progression, it's just, you know, reading as much as you can and then getting out there and doing it and then matching what the forecast is to kind of 
what you're um, what you're seeing in the sky. So your observation was something right from the get go that I think I'd read in the back of a book um, Bruce or whatever had um, talked about observation being the key to a lot of things. Mm. And so physically training myself, like while I'm driving and while I'm walking around, to kind of observe what's going on around me, I think has been a key part to the key part to the success. There's uh, anyone that's come retrieved with me or come um, driven in my car, we always play the tractor game, which is, you know, points for tractors and moving tractors. So <laughs> I love it. There's plenty of tractors in yeah. New Zealand. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I've, I guess the um, – I, I just look at paragliding like a series of building blocks like every other sport, that there's a couple of fundamental things that you need to start building on and then every iteration there's – you know, there's things that you add to it. And I'm still working on the stuff that, you know, I was working on the beginning, you know, like the thermaling. There's always a, a next level of thermaling or next level of observation or better decision-making that you can be making. It's just you're doing it at a, at a higher level. Hmm. So I'm curious, as you approach your progression, let's, for example, this year, you know, getting ready to go back after this winter and go back to Europe for the summer, which I'm assuming you're going to do, how how will this year be different? How will that pursuit look different than last year, for example? Is it is it more comps? Is it less comps? Is it more aesthetic? Is it more is it bigger triangles? Is it more ground handling? You know, what what is that? How do you how do you adapt each year? How do you keep it interesting? Oh look, so it's doing a bit of everything. So it's not I don't want to be doing comps the whole time. Um and just mix it out with some um cross country. Um, throwing some, well, what I call basic acro in there. <laughs> I'm not super flash at that, and that's probably been a bit of a gap in what I've done. But um, yeah, the it, yeah, it's just a variety of things, and not 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 trying to push any one thing. Mm. Um, but they all build together, really, aren't they? It's kind of we're going to make good decisions, and um, you know, for me, tactically, I think there's some things to learn. You know, there's all obviously things around thermaling that could get better. There's, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, this this whole accident thing and how if we thought about and made better decisions, we could be safer and also perform at the same time. So I've taken some of that knowledge and try, just trying to apply that to making less mistakes or being more consistent with the, the decision making. Mm. Okay, so one more question, then we'll get to the accident report. You you got me into uh, a podcast and a guy – actually, it wasn't a podcast, but it was a guy that was you know, very articulate sailplane. What was his name? Um, G. Dale, was it? Yes, exactly. Uh, yes. Sorry. You should re- definitely interview him. Yes, I, <laughs> yes, I need to. He's been on my list here. For, sitting right here. Uh, so – but you've also spent now quite a bit of time flying sailplanes and I'm, I'm wondering how that has affected your paragliding. What, what has it taught you? What have you, what have you gleaned from it that those of us who haven't should know about? Yeah, look, I mean, there are a lot of the same processes in terms of decision-making that we have that cross over. Um, I guess they talk about um, different energy systems. So, you know, like, dynamic wind, um, thermal, convergence. 
Um, but there's one area that we don't tend to talk too much about in um, paragliding, which is wave flying. Um, and, you know, we're not necessarily flying in wave, but what happens underneath that wave is quite important in terms of um, energy lines and where the, where the thermals might be popping more. Mm. I think I've got better at gliding and shifting. So, you know, in gliding you're flying a lot on energy lines and and moving a lot. I think the the concept behind that is quite um yeah, been quite beneficial. Um and what else? So look, I was very lucky to to learn with um Gavin Wills who set up Glider Marima here in um in New Zealand. Um, it's one of the top ten places to go sailplane flying. He's he's been in it over fifty years now, and really one of the best weather people that I that I know. And so, just the way we're looking at weather uh, in terms of the bigger picture, probably zooming out. And I think what I brought to bring to sailplane flying is the understanding of the um, well, as paraglider pilots, the understanding of the micromet. Mm. So, generally, I think the sailplane pilots are looking a lot bigger picture because they're covering a lot more ground over the course of a day. So, you know how you look at the weather over the course of the day, and you know a real focus on the synoptics um, is different. Mm. Um, but I've, from the very beginning, the weather was something that I think the sailplane community does a lot better and more detail than what we. Than what we do, mm. obviously there's pockets of good knowledge out there in the paragliding community, but I think generally, you know, they've they've been at this a lot longer since you know early, you know, twenties, thirties, yeah. you know, and they've they've made the mistakes, made the learnings, and and there's quite a depth of knowledge that, you know, being only I guess three decades, three or four decades old that. Um, Paragliding is quite young and still probably got quite a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's a good segue to the report because it's you know, one of the things I was just reviewing it again last night and you know, preparing to talk to you that seems to be much of aviation follows much more strict rules, sequences, strategies, whatever you want to, whatever words you want to talk about. There's, there's there's checklists there's you know there's there's things that you do and we're a lot more freewheeling and this is one of the things that came out of the report but talk about what was the why behind the port you know who who commissioned it and yeah let's get into it yeah look i started this probably about 4 years ago when um our, one of our executive came to us and said oh look our um reporting systems no good, and we need to find something um, better. So I'd, I'd done a, a search around the world to see what other reporting systems and what other um, things that were, people were doing and what the Europeans and um, co were doing in this space. And I realised actually um, it was relatively poor and the accident reports that are coming out were pretty limited. Uh, I'd actually witnessed a accident quite a number of years ago in Wanaka. Um, it was a spicy kind of day um, and um, flying a tandem. I made the decision to go land myself and another pilot who sort of flew over the top, went to the next spur, had a collapse and, and died. 
So he was a, a year into his flying career, and um, I read the reports that came out of that, um, both from the CAA and also um, yeah, uh, from the coroners, and I, I thought we really didn't learn or anything from that incident in terms of what was actually reported, so that was really an impetus behind it. So we set up this group um, a couple of years ago and sort of hand-picked um, some really good guys that were um, but a, a um, organisational psychologist. We had a, um, a someone who was really good with the stats, you know, um, and and people from different different disciplines like um, hang gliding and and also speed flying. Um, so yeah, the the first part of it, we we really wanted to keep it in the problem space to understand really where the problems were um, happening rather than come up with solutions. I looked at previous efforts uh, around the world, and it's very easy to get into solution mode um, early on. So we spent quite a bit of time just reviewing, um, you know, the basically the the information that was out there and uh, other reports and. Uh, other associations, and then delving into the 350 or so accidents at the time that we'd had across our database, and then even gone back into the 90s to look at the paper um, reports on on some of the deaths and um, serious accidents. How, how do do you feel like that's the 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 number is correct, or you know, our our reporting relies totally on people just volunteering the information it's not mandatory it's not yeah you know, there are a lot yeah. of accidents that just don't even get put into anything people don't people don't submit them to anything you know, yeah look, I, I think worldwide worldwide it is is a problem with underreporting, and i think that's across across everywhere um we've seen a increase in reporting here in new zealand uh, we've really made that a focus and it's, you know, it's a just culture approach, which is a no-blame approach, and then how can we learn from this? Um, I know our um, uh, CEO at the moment, he'll personally call up people after an accident, and the first question is not that, well, why did you do that? You're an idiot. It's, um, are you okay, and how can we help, you know, in starting a dialogue? Mm. And I think that you know the more senior pilots and people um, that people look up to share those types of events, the more likely they are that you know people are are willing to share. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why people don't share. I, I guess it's you know in a lot of cases it's embarrassment. Um, you know some of the time there's an inhibitor to the reporting system itself, so we simplified that and made it easier for people. Um, you know, it's a no-blame type approach um, where people feel like they can come forward and, and do that, um, I think, is really important. Mm. But the the other issue is, you know, perception of what actually happened. I mean, we've had some situations where we've had eyewitness report putting in a report and the pilot themselves putting in a report, and they're two completely different things. Mm. So often the pilots themselves don't really know or understand what actually happened. So that translates into the report being fairly limited. And it's actually not until you start doing some questioning afterwards and one-on-one -on -one that you actually really get to the, the nub of what might be happening. Mm. We often get the first order problem, okay, I had a collapse and crashed, but what you didn't see was 
okay, I had an argument with my partner and I was a bit stressed and then I rushed and then I didn't notice the knot and there was a series of things. Mm. But I think that's particularly poorly done or reported um, within all of the accident databases around the world. Mm. And it's interesting because the, the FAA has really sorted that out. You know, they, the, they always talk about the, the forensics are the first place you go and Yep. You know, and that that order of uh, that order of tiny, tiny, tiny mistakes. They, it's it's never like you said. It's it's the the engine doesn't blow up. That's that doesn't happen. It's not just a boom yes. and everybody dies. It's yep. always a series of little things that you know, if if noticed, handled, it's a non-event. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't escalate. Yeah, so one of the key bits of research and um, was by Matt Wilkes. He's done a quite extensive literature search, and you know, um, you know, a lot of the research is saying, you know, like, you know, there's there's actually not too many pure equipment failures that are happening out there. There's maybe ten percent of them, um, but actually, it's it's coming through human error and, and human decision making. Um, a third of the accidents have some form of Aerology um, or um, weather-related kind of factors mm. in there, but that high. Wow, you know, that's pretty high. But the, you know, the, the the human factors part of it is so undercooked in our um, um, in our community. It's really well studied, and it was um, it was quite interesting watching the commercial aviation and how that's um, progressed over the years. You know. Every sport or every um, industry is it goes through what I call a dangerous stage, where you know, um, where, you know, initially the the flight training and the gear are woefully dangerous. You know, we saw that with um, with hang gliding in the seventies, with um, kite surfing, sort of late nineties, and and where the first order of change was actually about changing the gear so that it was safer and that got better, and then instructors training standards and that got you know improved things but in the airline industry they got to about the 90s and um you know a perfectly good plane with good crew crashing into each other or into hills or falling out of the sky and they started realizing that actually human factors and crew resource management was you know two of the areas that um actually had the biggest um focus in that in the early 90s and that um caused the accident rate to drop significantly mm. because up until that time it had sort of plateaued off similar to what we've got in paragliding today mm. um but um yeah they uh yeah they, and then there's a, a ton of research that's gone into that area which is so i guess so undertapped in our um in our community I think I'd spent, you know, like a good six months just delving into all of that because I'm really interested in errors and how we make errors and why we make errors and how that could translate from, you know, um, not only safety but um, performance. Mm. I think there's a whole talk that we could do on that and I think um, um, Matt, who uh, was part of our team, would be probably the best person to talk to that and I can probably won't do it justice, but mm. I, I do think that is a, a big area that um, we can see some uh, improvement on. I, I look at, you know, the backcountry skiing um, community, for instance, and 
they've really got this down. I think they realised quite some time ago that you could teach people to dig pits and assess terrain and, you know, have all the right gear, but actually the problem was around the decision-making and mm. what they're calling the heuristic traps that sort of sit around that. Yeah, we've got a so. one of our real experts at the Avalanche Centre here. I actually had him. I went and saw one of his talks on decision-making that was so good, and I thought, holy cow, this is, he doesn't have to change a word of this. <laughs> this is exactly what we should hear in free flight. And I just hired him to come give a talk and actually didn't hire him. He did it for free, but I would have hired him to come give a talk for our club. And he literally yeah. didn't have to change anything. It was just, it was the slides from the, it was the talk that he gave for navigating, you know, decision-making in the backcountry, And it's the same yep. stuff. Peer pressure. Yeah, it's the same stuff. Thinking you're going to be okay. You know, it didn't happen to him. It's all the traps that we get into. You know, hasn't happened to me before. Won't yep. happen to me today. Yep, for sure. You know, getting away from that, this one flight is the most important flight of your life thinking that, yep. that gets people in trouble. Yeah, look, there's lots of great research in the commercial aviation, but by and large, it's been poorly adapted for our use. And so the language and the approach doesn't sit very well but the the research that underpins it is absolutely applicable to us I think in the backcountry skiing they're closer to the adventure ethos that we have in, um, in paragliding and so probably resonates better with um, with with most pilots mm. when you look at backcountry you know I, I think one of the things that stands out to me is that you know at, at, Deaths happen in the backcountry every year, but when they do happen, it's a big deal. You know, it's, you know, last year there'll be, you know, I think last year was a big year. There was a, there was half a dozen in the, in the U S which for numbers of skiers, you know, that, that, that is a, that's a big number. That's, that's very unfortunate, but it's nothing compared to free flight. <laughs> um, you know, I wonder if it's where are we in this stage? I guess is what I'm saying is is you know will will we will we be able to reach that or is it just that much more dangerous? Look, if I had a crystal ball, I'd probably make a lot more money than I am at the moment. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and you'll be able to answer your question. But I, I don't know. I th my sense is that we're actually relatively young. We've sort of hit a plateau here. I think, you know, internationally, the instructor's training standards are, you know, vary from from um, association to association. But even the big ones like, you know, France and Germany are still having significant number of deaths. Um, I I think, you know, like what the, what the report sort of taught me or just reinforced is that there's some really basic things that people are getting wrong on a regular basis and if we can address those things then um you know we can we can reduce our risk a lot so you know around launch and landing and the decision to fly for instance um you know things around wing handling and ground handling and stuff like that um look we all know we need to ground handle but how many of us actually go and do that mm. why don't we do it what's inhibitors for that you know mm. and you know we all know that it's you know it's it's um it's going to help you fly better and react more naturally to your to your wing. Um, you're going to have better takeoffs and less chances of um, of crashing on on takeoff. 
Um, and your landing, you know, structured approaches to landing, giving yourself space and margin. That concept of margin goes across all sports and everything that we do. Mm. Um, we just had one the other day where someone wanted to land next to the car, and that's a common thing, right? We don't want to. We all don't want to walk. But is that the safest place for you to land? You know, like okay, if it's um, if it's uh, you know, it's compromising your safety in a way that you you, you don't have uh, any margin, then. You know, giving yourself margin, I think, is like a really, really key, key concept. Yeah, I mean, if we're not going to re remove all the risks, but we might as well remove the risks that we can. Yeah, those are easy. You yeah. know, never. What is it? Nick Resources. You know, never, never be, never, never inconvenience yourself. Never, never. Wait, see, no, see. What is the what does the saying for? You never want to be afraid or something of inconvenience yourself. I'm, I'm screwing up the, the quote, yeah. but it's, you know, yeah. Walk another hundred yards. Don't put yeah, it down yeah, in, the, yeah. in the little timestamp. Yeah. So if I was looking at launching, you know, and the key bits for that, um, yeah, there's two parts to it. There's obviously the setup and the decision to fly. And then there's the mechanical act of the, the inflation controlling it and then, um, you know, obviously committing to, to running. So, you know, the human factors comes really into the decision to fly, that first part of it, setting up your kit. Um, the spot where you choose to launch is vitally important. There's, you know, there's multiple accidents that we've seen where, you know, people haven't cleared or checked where they're actually running. Um, there have been rocks that they've slammed into. Uh, in terms of the actual launch itself, I think, you know, it's pretty clear that... Um, that control phase of, you know, when you're inflating control and then trying to commit to it, people are rushing that, um, which ends up, you know, with the wing in a undesired state or, um, yeah, um, collapsing or doing something it, it shouldn't have. So it's really taking the time to make sure that that wing's well controlled before you're committing to that launch. Mm. And it's not always possible when it's super windy and you get plucked off, but... Um, Obviously, the ground handling um, really helps with that, and is uh, a key bit to keeping yourself safe. What are what are just do a quick checklist here? What what were the kind of the main summary takeaways? That I think it's the third or fourth page in the in the in the report. It's you know what what are the things like you just went in the launching, the landing, uh, deciding to fly. What are the big ones? What what. Other than those, what are what are the ones that you just see repeated over and over again? Yeah, well, th those are the big things. So, like I'm saying, this is the the basics and doing the basics well. Mm. So, you know, doing um, in terms of the landing, look, um, there's all through the reports we commonly see the description. I was too high, too low, and then something happened. Mm. So, there's a multitude of reasons that you know things might be going wrong in that space is not giving enough time for that um you know final commit to, to landing so that comes back to the the setup and the structure of of the landing um you know it's um it's dealing with those situations where you're too high or too low you know maybe deeper in the brakes you know there's something going on in the landing paddock, like, you know, thermal kicking off or change in wind direction, and then suddenly you've stalled and you've sputtered in. Mm. Low low turns to the ground, common common issue. 
Um, I think also um, observation of what's going on, I think, might be lacking in some cases. So often people are ending up in downwind situations where they end up too high into the paddock and then end up having to force it in. Mm. So Do you chalk that, comes that up back to, to the... complacency or just unaware? I, I, I don't know. I don't I don't mm. <laughs> I can't really read people's minds in every case. So um I, I think in some cases it's overload and this is a common problem across any sport that we do and um you know particularly pertinent to what we do, you know, when you're stressed and you might not take in as much information as you um as you need to to realise that the wind socks changed or the um the winds changed direction. Um yeah, so I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure how well we actually treat tell teach people to actually observe. And I, I know that's something that they actually teach in the sailplane world is how to actually look and you know scan path control in terms of how to look and what to look for what are those cues that you need to look for and you know so you know you could be at 10,000 feet and some of these really experienced sailplane pilots know exactly how much wind is there just by the color of the um of the lake and the texture of it mm. so um i think that's important too you know it's not just what you're looking at it's um yeah, not just that you're looking, but you're looking for the right cues. Mm, fascinating. Yeah. I'm curious, what's been the fallout? Are you seeing are you seeing results? And maybe even compare this to your own personal how have you changed your own personal approach to flying as a result of going through all this work? Yeah, look, we always we all have a pattern like if you look at back at your accidents and you you look at different things um relating to those accidents and there's a common pattern in there like you might be rushing or inattentive to the to the um to the pre-flight check or you know there might be something in there that that applies to everyone for me it's kind of reinforced a lot of things um i mean i've always had the if it doesn't feel right, or what I call the hinky feeling, that's probably not right. Mm. And and you may not know what that is at the time, but if it's you're paying attention to that feeling and then being able to step away, I think that's just reinforced that that's really important. Um, the discipline with checks and stuff like that, I think that's really what's come out of um, gliding for me is that, you know, they're all about the checklists and, um, we've got the five point check, which is fine, but there's what about the personal check? You know, how you how you're feeling, what's going on around you, um, those sorts of things I think um is important. Um yeah, I I think the the wing handling's vitally important as well, and I, I really like the approach that Flyo um have taken. I know you've interviewed them previously, but there's some basics in there around connecting with the harness. So, you know, when we get scared or people get scared, often you're Sit sitting forward in your um, in your harness and maybe not connecting with that. So that's vitally important. Disconnecting your hands from the from the body movement mm. um, is vitally important because you know, when you when you have a collapse, your natural tendency is to want to put your hand out and put your hand down, which then creates a cascade of events mm. 
Um, and um, I think yeah, that that that's something that I I think they do really well. And they talk also about situational awareness, uh, which I've talked about as well. Mm-hmm. So being aware of where you are relative to the ground and being always prepared to throw that reserve if need be. Mm. If there's one thing that um, Mac Wiltz's um, studies taught us is, you know, if in doubt, throw, you know, mm. because there are a lot of deaths that are happening or serious accidents because people are not throwing early enough and not having that situational awareness to do that. Mm. So there's two parts to that. There's the the decision to throw and training that, and then there's the physical act of throwing, which I think is vitally important. Mm. You and I have both been in the game long enough that we've we've seen some some horrors. Uh, you know, one is obviously both of our friend Nick. Uh, that one shook up the community in a way that I hadn't seen others have because it was Nick, but also because it didn't sound like it was a radical day. It wasn't an X Alps day. It wasn't you know the thousands of days he's flown in it sounded for the most part unless unless i don't have the story right it sounded you know yep. certainly for nick pretty benign there were lots of other people flying uh he had thrown his reserve multiple times he you know he had the training he had the awareness he has the calmness uh and we have all had other people who are very good at this sport have had the same or worse, how much, you know, when you're going through and you've looked at these reports, how much of of it is still, in your opinion, just a roll of the dice versus being able to, you know, and you are, you're, you and I are pursuing this sport at a, at a, you know, at at a level where we're racing world cups and that kind of thing, you know, how much of it is a roll of dice for, Look, I, I don't know for sure, Gavin. I, I, my gut feel says it's probably around 20%, mm. but I don't have any facts, yeah. figures to sure. back that up. Sure. But I, I think I'd make the point that actually, um, well, first up, in Nick's case, look, we're probably both surprised it hasn't happened earlier. Mm. <laughs> I've seen some of the stuff he's done. Yeah. Um, but look, if the accident stats bear anything out, it's not all about the hardcore conditions and the you know, the big mountain flying that's creating it, a lot of these things are happening on your own home site on in good conditions. Maybe nine days. So, you know, like it's pilot error or, you know, something something else that's um that's creating it. Look and with Nick's um accident, it wasn't actually the initial impact that um created the issue. I don't know if you've seen his latest video, but it was actually a reinflation of his reserve as the helicopter came in that dragged him down the hill and it ultimately mm-hmm. likely caused the problem. Wow. That's yeah. awful luck. Yeah. So look, I'm not having a go at any of the rescue people because, you know, they do a fantastic job, but sure. it's just a combination of um, events that sort of led to that. And, you know, like it's not bubble wrapped and um, it's not a Disneyland ride, um, as is a lot of other sports that we do. But I think if we focus on the basics and try and, you know, making good decisions and aware of the things that, you know, those heuristic traps and the things that um, are influencing this, either internal distractions or external distractions, I think we're in a in a better space to be able to um, can prevent a lot of these, what I call avoidable accidents. 
I'm curious when you went back through, and I think you said there was, you know, 350 reported or or maybe or known incidences that that you you looked at a lot more closely. I'm, I'm curious how things skewed in terms of hours. You know, is it is it more the beginners? Is it more the intermediate syndromes? Is it more the expert halo folks? Yeah, right. How does that? How did that skew? Yeah, look, that really interesting question. And look, um, a lot of the accident stats around the world are not tied to what I call the the gold standard, which is a per ten thousand hour rate um, accident rate. So what we had been able to do in New Zealand is tie that to um, to the ten thousand hour rate. And what we see on a per hour basis, the first 100 hours is double as dangerous. And it's a really steep hockey stick in that first 20 to 30 hours. Say that um, again. Say that again. I want to make sure everybody got that. Yeah. So in the first 100 hours on a per hour basis, it's double as dangerous. Double as dangerous. Okay. Wow. Yeah. In the first 20 to 30 hours, there's obviously there's a, what I in the, on, in the graph, there's a bit of a hockey stick there as well. So it's... Wow even more wow it's like you don't know you don't know what you don't know at that at that point interesting but that's not to say that us as advanced pilots are less at risk we fly more hours and we're doing more stuff so you know any one year we might be just as at at risk there was a really interesting stat that came out of the um, french association recently which said that their uh instructors were basically double as likely um, for a serious accident or death than um, other people flying the similar sort of hours. Holy shit. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. So we're, we're all at risk, but for different reasons. So, you know, as you get um, better, you know, complacency can set in and then you're playing a numbers game in terms of the number of hours that you're flying. Curious. And, and I don't remember this from the report, but, when you studied it and, the, and when you also studied other countries and, you know, that stats amazing with instructors being twice as more likely, does it start to change in terms of where and how the accident happens? Is it still the basic stuff? Is it still the launching and landing or is it more the, I can solve this and not, and not dealing with a cascade or not dealing with not having yeah. the margin, you know, being too much ego. Right. I, yeah, look, so the stats that I was referring to regarding the instructor ones came out of France. So there could be some cultural things going on there. One of the problems that we have is that every association is doing their own thing. Uh, the Europeans do share data amongst themselves, but the output and the lessons and all that sort of stuff is is really done quite independently um, and by and large. So it's very difficult to compare you know, apples with apples mm. uh, in terms of that per, ex, per hour rate. But in that particular case with the French one, I think they identified that there was a small number of what they would call, you know, gnarly conditions or things that were obviously um, creating that because of the conditions or the or the type of flying that we're doing. Mostly it's, you know, regular flying and regular stuff that um, people are getting caught out with. Mm. You mentioned in the in the report Norway as a good example. What are they doing differently? Yeah, someone said to me, I talked to a guy that would um been part of the CIVL and um safety through the mid two thousands and you know, he did um comment that, you know, a lot of the big associations like um 
Germany and France tend to do their own thing, but um, Norway had actually learnt from all of them. <laughs> They'd had quite a high number of accidents, um, you know, deaths. I think it was around 2% of their membership would, were dying. So they stopped the speed when flying stuff for a year, got a proper syllabus in there and were training. Um, I, yeah, they've just really turned around um, that accident stats. So I think this has been a focus on some of the um, human factors stuff. They track all their members' um, hours in an online log, log book so they can see accurately within the country and um, when they go travelling as to kind of the accident rates. Mm. But I, I think the one that stood out to me, um, the, like in the gliding world, there have been a couple of examples of um, really good associations that had um, basically brought their, significantly brought their um, uh, accident rate down. Um, you know, the British realised that they were killing people on tow and um, put a programme together and then um, did a sort of a roadshow over a couple of years to all of the clubs to retrain people and get the winch drivers up to speed to do that. Mm. But the one that really sort of stood out to me was Flytop. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was, I think it was a, a Swiss or German thing, and it was led by a, basically a, a human factors, um, uh, you know, sort of mindset behind it. And they said rather than train the individual, they trained the club and the community together um, to kind of help do what I call sort of threat and error management and crew resource management, some of the the things that came out of the um, the aviation world. Yeah. So they they're influencing a um, a culture rather than necessarily in an individual. And I think that culture has a large part in in kind of um, you know possibly an, an underrated um, part of um, you know the safety. Um, thing that we maybe don't give enough credit for. Absolutely. Oh, so I, I think, you know, um, Brad Paterfield, uh, the the guy that does the base um, accident rate, he, he talks about this. He says that when a community's had a few accidents and they become more, more conservative than if that memory's not fresh. And that lines up with the human psychology as well, which we're really terrible at assessing risk, most of us. Mm. We, we assess risk based on proximity of our experience to what's actually happened. Mm. So, you know, as we get more experience, we see more things and, you know, some people get more cautious with that. Mm. Mm. I see that in my regular job as well, which is IT security. Um, and the base of that is assessing risk as well. But we're making the same errors across across the mains. So it's um, we, we all make errors all the time. Yeah, it's just we don't always notice that we're making them. So the first step is to notice that we're making them, and then then we've got a chance to actually maybe do something about it. Yeah, this is this thing, this this concept of making cheap mistakes. You know, if you don't, yep, you don't make yep. the mistakes, you don't really learn. But man, the mistakes can be expensive <laughs> when you're yep. dealing with gravity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I I like the community side of it. I hadn't heard that. I remember being in Macedonia a bunch of years ago and sitting down with it was either the Danes or the Swedes, and they 
know, their, their club approach to teaching was very different than anything I had seen before. So if you go to the club to learn how to fly, you're kind of taken in to the fold by, you'll get a mentor. They don't really call it an instructor as I remember. And, and the club will, will send a group of people down to Annecy to learn to, you know, to do your SIV or to do, you know, to, to learn your, your, your initial XC and that mentor, they get the, they get the trip, you know, that yep. the, the club pays mm-hmm. for that trip. And so, sure. so if, so then if the student then comes up through that program and they sometimes, someday they become the mentor, they're incentivized that well, I'm going to get a trip if I become a good mentor and a sure. good instructor. And, and so it's all kind of feeding the system. You know, you're, you're very incentivized to teach well and to bring people yep. up through the program and, uh, that was that was a kind of a cool concept. So I imagine you know there you're not necessarily teaching, and you don't you don't have a curriculum for the instructor. You have a curriculum for the club. Yeah, look, the British have that sort of model as well. They teach into a certain level and then get into a club scene. Mm. I do think there's something in that first twenty thirty hours in terms of a sign off. You know, like where you True. you need to to go and learn, but then keep learning for that first 20, 30 hours in a sort of a supervised environment, which then at the end of that you get signed off. So mm. there's there's examples of that in Australia and the Swiss do it. Um, I don't have clear numbers in terms of, um, you know, that it reduces the accident rate, but I, my intuition is says that really, you know, we've got a real problem in the first 100 hours and not just accidents, we've got a lot of people leaving the sport because mm. um, they might do 40, 40 flights. They just get enough to be able to launch and land, but n- not necessarily the confidence to carry on. So mm. I think that socialization into the community is like vitally important. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know the, the connection between the, the schools and the clubs or the community and helping people get into that community. You know, if if you're you got a bunch of people to go fly with, you're more likely to go flying, and then you're more likely to learn off others. Where you get your license and then rush off and then into the mountains and go do your, you know, your volbiv and fly hike with twenty hours of flying, well, that becomes quite dangerous on your own. Mm. Mm. So I think that oversight, um, because you don't know what you don't know at that stage, right? Mm. At least at a hundred hours, you know what you don't know and maybe choose to, to kind of do something different. But um, it's very much, you know, in those first 20, 30, 100 hours, it's very much like driving a car. You know, when you first start, you're focused on changing the gears and doing the mechanical parts of it, and that needs to build, right? Mm-hmm. So it becomes more automatic. Um, and then, then you're able to observe better, right? And so... If you're too overloaded in those early stages, then yeah, you start running into brick heading, walls. Running into brick walls. So <laughs> either you give up or you have an accident. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm curious. So this came out a year ago. How hard has it been to change the culture in New Zealand? How easy has it been? What's what's again the fallout? What's what's happened as a result of it? Yeah, look, it's like we're New Zealand, like a lot of associations, we're we're run by volunteers. So, you know, there's a natural limitation in terms of the amount that we can do in any one year. Um, 
we have some safety campaigns that are in the wings that are about to be released. Um, you know, we've uh, been doing instructor seminars on various things like landings and takeoffs and stuff like that. Mm. Um, there's at a club level, uh, we're trying to influence the, the safety officers. Um, yeah, so it's look, it's honestly, it's slow progress, and I can't say that we've actually turned it around yet. But you know, I'd like to think in five years' time, it's a, it's a long term thing. Mm. Um, that you know, we, we can um, have some proper steps in there that um, are actually making a difference. Part of the problem, I think, is. Because we don't have good stats internationally, how do we know, you know, on a per ten thousand hour basis, what interventions are actually working and are effective? And I've often thought that actually maybe we're approaching this the wrong way. We're 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 doing the accident research after the accident rather than thinking about well, what are the people that are not having accidents doing different? Mm. Mm. And maybe that might be a way to to come at it. Mm. Instead of focus on focusing on the doom, we focus on the yeah. The glory. Because we we don't actually we know, we know the accident reports are not as accurate um, and a reflection of what's really actually happening here. Mm. Um, and I think if you come back to that, I think you know the the first order of things in safety critical systems is the design. So we've seen that you know with. Um, Enzo's, you know, the very top level, you know, people used to be throwing the reserve all the time and killing themselves and getting it. It's, you know, we still have reserves, but nowhere near the rate. Mm. We've changed the gear. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is the training. Um, and and good and proper training, I think, and consistent. And that's not consistent throughout the world. The third thing is education. Um, so that's you know, what we're talking about now, podcasts and materials that go into magazines and stuff like that. And the very last order of things is legislation and rules and regulation. Mm. But we do the exact opposite, you know, in a lot of cases, and this is not just in paragliding, but in other industries and other places. We start with the rules and the regulations. We try and do a bit of education, but we never really address the real root of the problem, which is the equipment and the and the and the training that sits underneath it. Mm. That we're so all fallible was... human beings, and we're going to fuck yeah, it up. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, well said. Uh, that's that's yeah. a nice way to look at that. My last question that I had written down for you, you you've kind of answered this in terms of that hockey stick, you know, with the with the hundred hour pilot. But I'm curious because the the pilots who make the sport run in a sense, and I'm talking about from the financial side and the manufacturers and, you know, we wouldn't have the Enzo if we didn't have the B and C pilots. Right. And they are, what do we call them? We call the, the, the weekend warriors, the people who are on their way to becoming comp pilots and flying CCC gliders. But the, the, the 85% of this sport the, the folks who are, you know, maybe getting 50 to 100 hours a year kind of pilot, uh, and I may be wrong there in terms of the hours, but in the folks who love it, who, who don't have the time or the job or the, the ability to do it maybe as much as they want, but they get after it when they can, how would you categorize, and I don't know if you're 
study answered this, but I feel like you probably have a good knee jerk uh, to this is, you know, how would you compare the risk of that pilot versus an X out pilot, you know, and say in this last one, that's dealing with 60 kilometer an hour winds at peak height, you know, just abhorrent, scary conditions for any recreational pilot. But it's interesting because we don't see, we've certainly seen plenty of accidents in the X-Ups, but we haven't seen anything major in the history of the race. I'm not sure if it's a useful comparison. Um, what I and we don't need to be that extreme. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, like the I expert about, versus the intermediate. Yeah, look, I mean, Julian Garcia in, the, in your previous podcast really nailed what I thought thinks going on with the X Alps and the risks involved there. You you can do it relatively safely, but if you're wanting to be up the front, you're going to have to be taking some serious risks and in, in wind. So you know, it's about margin, right? And these guys are operating to the edge of their margin and probably relatively good at kind of judging that. Um, for the majority of us, we're not always good at judging of, you know, where our level is or what the conditions are, and I think that's major, major difference between the two. Mm. Um, yeah, so, look, there are different things, different risks at different levels, and I, I think we're... You know, if we ask ourselves, you know, who's most at risk here and we point outwards from ourselves, then we're doing ourselves a disfavour mm. because, it, you know, ultimately we're all at risk. Regardless. Yeah. And there's a, there, there's a lot that the sport can bring, you know, and, and we've just, we just I'd look at it personally from what, what do I get for what I might lose. And, and at the moment that um, that's... Uh, in the favour of flying, and maybe that changes with time. But there's certainly ways of um, flying that are less risky than others, and I think if you pay attention to those, then you can have a full and it's no reason why it's not possible to to, to go without an accident. But um, certainly, there's yeah, there's some inherent risk in there that you just can't get away from. I like that thinking about it. You know, what can I get versus what can I lose? I, I mean, I, th- I think if you had that approach to every time you're going to take to the sky, that's a, that's a nice one. You know, yeah. Chris Kirchie says, you know, that the good days are going to come around. You don't need to fly the bad days, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you could just yeah. wait for a better day. Yeah, for sure. Love it. Yeah. Um, look, yeah. If I often think that if we avoided, you know, 20% of the, the, meteorology that's sort of dodgy then we'd reduce the accidents by 80 i don't have any figures to back that up but i think you know there's there's a um it'd certainly be nicer for our heads wasn't it wasn't it because you yeah we've all gotten out of a lot of those situations without an accident but it can certainly leave other types of scars where yeah yeah, it's not that much fun yeah Mm. Yeah, look, in terms of um, gear and stuff like that, look, I've mentioned before that it's a relatively small part of the um, equation in terms of causing accidents. But, you know, we've really gone ahead with um, the wings and the passive safety with those and the performance. But um, I have a feeling that we're kind of going backwards on the on the, on the, on the harnesses and the back protection. Yeah, for sure. And it's a, it's a complex problem because... It's a chicken and egg, you know. The manufacturers uh, will produce what what people want, and what people want is lighter. 
you know, they could produce really good back protectors, but if it doesn't sell, then, you know, it's it's not going to be successful. So, I, yeah. Yeah, this, this, it's a mat. We've talked about this quite a bit. Uh, won't hammer it here, but the, you know, the hike and fly thing is incredibly exciting. It's great for the sport. You know, it's increasing numbers. It's, it's getting people into nature. It's all good. Right. But man, that's a massive compromise. I mean, you know, for my four campaigns, I've had to fly a quote unquote certified harness. It wouldn't protect a bug in a, in a rug, you know, I mean, it, there, <laughs> these are not, uh, these certifications are awfully low standards when it comes to harnesses. Uh, and I couldn't agree with you more there that we are, we are radically compromising yeah. on safety and, uh, it, yeah, people I, just I, need I, to understand that. <laughs> yeah. Look, it was Matt Wilkes that sort of twigged me to thinking about this a bit more and he presented it to us and like he, he still hikes up, um, hikes up hills with the lightweight stuff. I said, Matt, you're anaesthetist. You see these accidents. You know the stats, but yet you're going to do it. What would change your mind? And he like had to think about it, and he said, "Well, there's not good valid alternatives that are light, and you're, there's a compromise at some point, right? Exactly. You want light, then yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I wonder if if we could all see the inner workings. You know, you don't you don't see too many nurses riding motorcycles." Because they've seen the head injuries, <laughs> you know, over and over <laughs> and over again. You know, I wonder if we could yeah. really see it. I wonder if we'd be doing it. But, uh, Louis, awesome stuff. I really appreciate this, and I appreciate you and your team going through all the effort of producing this. I would love to, you know, I've been holding us for a long time. Is is this something now? You said you released it about a year ago. It'd be great to. Can I help share this document and yeah, get it sure. out? Great. Look, look, um, it's it's not an easy read. We we didn't do it for mass consumption. We did it to sure. highlight where where gaps might be to kind of um, uh, make further efforts. So it's not not a super easy read, but um, yeah, certainly happy, happy to um to share that. For a lot of people who've been in the game a long time, it shouldn't be too surprising, but um. We've tried to break down the recommendations and cherry pick some stuff um, based on, you know, what can an association do, what can a school do, what can an instructor do, what can an individual do. We're not claiming it's comprehensive, but it was just where we thought things were at and more than happy to kind of interact with uh, others around the world on this and if people got feedback and have got other things to add, then, um, yeah, happy to carry on that conversation. Great. Well, we'll we'll get it out there again. Thanks to you. Thanks to your team, and, and thanks for all making us making us all hopefully a little bit safer. I appreciate it. Sure. No worries. Well, pleasure being on here, and uh, yeah, good good to chat to you again, Gavin. Always. Thanks, bud. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And, of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing. 
lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I... For a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show thank you